my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your host, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. To start off this episode, I have a correction. I recommended a movie last episode called Dreamhouse. Silly goober, that's not the right title. The movie I meant to recommend is Dream Home. It's a 2010 slasher from China where a woman who's upset about not being able to buy her dream home starts killing a bunch of people in ridiculous fashion. Check it out if you love gory, unique kills. This episode is full of body horror, strange curses, and bloody transformations. Don't let any weird rich people touch you as we congregate. Number 1. Faust, Love of the Damned 2000, directed by Brian Usna. After his girlfriend is killed, a guy named John Jaspers plans on committing suicide. He's stopped by a guy named M. M gives Jaspers the power to get revenge through a contract. Jaspers kills the gang responsible for his girlfriend's death, then ends up in a psych ward after also killing a bunch of embassy people. A therapist named Jade meets him. M buries Jaspers alive to kill him and is trying to summon a homunculus. Jaspers survives and becomes Faust. Faust kills his way to M, kills the homunculus, has his contract with M destroyed, kills M, and then dies since Jaspers is no longer immortal. Jaspers slash Faust, a gang, M, a lady that's super sexual, cult followers, and the homunculus are the killers. The plot of Faust is all over the place. I didn't cover nearly everything that happened with that summary. Faust is based on a comic book. Basically, Faust is Spawn before Spawn was a thing. That's the easiest way to explain what Faust is. If you have ever heard of Faust, Love of the Damned, before now, I'm assuming you saw it on an episode of Red Letter Media's Best of the Worst. That's where I first saw it. Seeing Faust on that made it look like a ton of fun. Is it? Not really. I mean, there is a bunch of crazy stuff to gawk at that is pretty neat. Screaming Mad George was in charge of the effects and things get weird. For example, there's a scene in the movie where the lady who is all about the sexin is turned into a literal goopy pile of TNA. You heard me right. She is turned into a boob-butt slime monster. It's as amazing as it sounds. Faust has a ton of fun gore and crazy body horror moments that are great to see on screen. Since Faust is basically Wolverine, the movie is filled with decapitations, severed limbs, stabs, and even eye removal. The practical gore is prominent throughout Faust 
and definitely a selling point. I already mentioned the TNA puddle lady. You also get a goopy-faced man, a literal strangulation by skeleton attempt, a snake pulled out of an abdomen and inserted in another person's mouth, and some really cool creature character designs like Faust, the smooth-faced man, and the homunculus. Another thing that needs to be mentioned, M's stomach turns into a monster mouth full of teeth and literally eats someone. I'm so close to recommending Faust for all the cool effects work, but even with the effects work and hilarious acting, the film drags hard. How hilarious is the acting, you might be asking? Mark Frost plays the titular Faust and John Jaspers. Whenever he is playing John Jaspers, he makes the goofiest faces I have ever seen in a movie that's not starring Jim Carrey. Seriously, Mark's face making is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie. The character of Faust is really animated, which is probably why Mark Frost was picked. But I have no idea why they let him ham it up so hard with the faces when he wasn't in Faust form. Mark Frost was in another movie covered on this podcast called Mayhem, but I can't picture who he played in that. Jeffrey Combs plays a cop that M starts controlling. His performance is very Jeffrey Combs in this. Andrew Divoff, who plays the Jin in Wishmaster, which I'll get to eventually, plays M and he delivers every line as if he's doing an impression of Vincent Price, which is hilarious. Another hilarious aspect of the movie is the sound design. The sound effects are over the top, cheesy, and comic-y. Not to be outdone by the sound effects, the soundtrack is full of terrible, corny metal, and whenever anything sexual happens, be it good or bad, the same ill-fitting song is played. I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was something like, mm-hmm-hmm-hmm. A huge issue with Faust that doesn't make it funny is the editing. A lot of shots are slowed down, shots are quickly faded into each other, and a lot of the movie is just plain choppy. It's a complete assault on the old eyes. I was really excited to watch Faust Love of the Damned, but as an entire movie, it ends up dragging far too much for me to recommend. Instead of watching Faust, I recommend you go watch the Red Letter Media Best of the Worst episode that covers it. You can find it on YouTube. They'll show you most of the fun stuff that's in the movie. Brian Usna produced Reanimator, directed some of its sequels, and also directed Society and Return of the Living Dead 3. I'll Usna it up a little later. Number 2, Cam, 2018, directed by Daniel Goldhaber. A Cam model named Lola is trying to rise up the ranks. She starts gaining some serious traction after feigning suicide during a show. After continuing to rise, she wakes up to find something has taken over her account. Something that looks exactly like her. It's revealed that a strange AI has taken over the account and took over other girls' accounts, including the top spot girl who died in a car crash mysteriously. Real Lola challenges fake AI Lola to a Lola off and wins after repeatedly bashing her face on her desk. Real Lola then deletes the Lola account and starts over with a new name. A car crash is the killer. I had to reach for the killer since there isn't really one in cam. Not a lot about the weird AI is explained 
It is possible that the AI caused the car crash that killed the top spot girl, but we don't know that for sure. First off, Cam is not a movie to watch with your parents. As the title suggests, a lot of time is spent showing Cam girls doing their thing. One thing I really liked is Cam's aesthetic. Whenever Lola is in Cam mode or around other Cam girls, the lighting is neon and fun, contrasted with the low saturation shots when she is going about regular life. Cam's whole presentation is great. I love the set design, lighting, and the score. The sound design is great. I especially liked how the tips Lola received while working were accompanied by dings, were basically attacked by dings until Lola's account is taken over. After the takeover, Lola sits in silence, which wouldn't have been as impactful without the use of the dings. Another great thing that Cam brings to the table are hilarious emotes. I'm assuming most of the ones in the chat were made for the movie. There's an emote that flashes, a Rex, a laughing redneck Jesus, frog with silverware, pepper dancing on hot sauce, smiley flogging itself on the back, a smiley licking a butt, and an American Eagle with an M16, just to name a bunch. I really enjoyed seeing all the ridiculous emotes. Cam requires you to suspend your disbelief way more than is necessary. In this day and age, you can use technology to map someone's face on someone else's body, and if you have a bunch of recordings of them talking, you can even fake new phrases. For Cam's purposes, I'd be willing to suspend my disbelief to the extent that I'd believe that the AI could basically go through Lola's archive of videos and patch together new material of her in her studio. Unfortunately, Cam does one thing that is so ridiculous that I could no longer suspend my disbelief. At one point, AI Lola leaves the studio room, which is the setting for all of Lola's real videos, and walks through the rest of her house, goes to real Lola's actual bedroom, and even shows a picture of real Lola's brother. What? Why is this in the movie? I mean, the invasion of privacy by the AI is scary, but completely impossible. If the AI can do this, it's no longer an AI, but rather some ghost or demon thing. I really wish we didn't get the AI house tour because it's just too ridiculous. Minus that, I'm okay with not getting a great explanation as to how the AI took over a bunch of accounts and fakes being a bunch of girls. With the technology that exists today, it's almost possible to do something similar, even though I doubt it would be cost effective. Maybe it would be though. We aren't told the exact amounts these cam girls are making in cam, but to be fair, it does seem like a lot. Lola has a giant house all to herself. Even though there aren't really any kills, Cam includes some fun gore. Lola and AI Lola both fake suicides with a knife and gun respectively, which have some fun practical gore that looks pretty good. The knife suicide looked much more practical than the gun one. The bloodied and broken nose gore that we get after the multiple face bashes on the desk is practical and yeesh inducing. Injuries that could realistically happen to me seem to get under my skin a lot more than overly shocking injuries. I could try to open a door only to have someone accidentally slam it open in my face. When I was a young boy, a rogue basketball hit me in the face nose first and that was crazy painful. I guess the personal frame of reference I have is what really makes me cringe during the face smashes 
and the aftermath reveals. Madeline Brewer plays Lola, and overall I thought her performance was great. The differences between the on and off camera personas was fun to see. Besides the emotes, there is some other silliness in cam. After the fake suicide, Lola's next crazy cam stunt is to take bites out of a steak. Yeah, that seems pretty normal to me. Maybe if her character was a vegetarian, this could be considered crazy, but we're never told that she is. So when she says, this is so crazy, when all she's doing is eating a steak, it's in fact not so crazy. Another silly thing is her waiting to break it to her mom that she's a cam girl. Her reasoning is that she wants to wait until she's the best cam girl. Hate to break it to you, Lola. No matter what your status is, your mom will either support you or hate you for that decision. Lola has to go to the library to use a computer after she smashes hers, so she gets on a computer that can easily be seen by other library goers, doesn't mute the audio, and then starts surfing the cam site she was on. Come on, Lola. You can't just look that kind of stuff up in public. One last goofy thing. One of Lola's fans oversteps some boundaries and calls her on a phone number he's not supposed to unless it's an emergency. She ends the call by saying, mission failure, and hanging up. I should start ending my phone calls that way. The only better exit phrase is a deadpan, I should go, from the Mass Effect series. Besides the creepy, identity-stealing AI, the film perfectly showcases real fears of sex workers like stalkers and not being taken seriously by the police. Cam is an entertaining film that I recommend. I still wish that the AI house tour was removed. The screenwriter, Isa Maize, was a former cam girl herself and pulled a lot of inspiration for the film from her own experiences. I was wondering why the director ended up being a guy, and that's because Isa and the director, Daniel Goldhaber, have been friends since high school. Number 3, Society, 1989, directed by Brian Usna. A boy named Billy suspects some weird stuff is going on with his parents and sister. His sister's ex-boyfriend, Blanchard, plays Billy a damning recording of the sister and parents. Blanchard mysteriously dies in a car accident right after. Billy starts seeing a girl named Clarissa. Billy attempts to confront his family. A bunch of people pop up. A society is having a party. The society brings out Blanchard, who's still alive, and sucks the life out of him while also becoming all goopy and intertwined. The society seem to be aliens, but say they aren't. A flesh orgy breaks out. Billy fights one of the society members named Ferguson. Billy turns Ferguson inside out, which might have killed him. Billy, his friend Milo, and Clarissa then drive off into the sunset. The society are the killers. Society is a heavy-handed satirization that literally shows the rich eating the poor. Society is listed as a comedy, but nothing that happens is inherently funny. There are some slapstick scenes like characters getting squirted with sunscreen and Billy running into a large woman, but I don't recall laughing at anything the movie wanted me to. The main draw of the movie is the absolute bonkers practical effects from Screaming Mad George. I didn't talk about him a ton in the Faust section, so here's some info about Screaming Mad George. He started off in a punk rock band and was sought out by the film industry due to his gory music videos. 
You can see his work in Big Trouble in Little China, Predator, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and 4, and these Yuzna flicks. It looks like he also did some makeup and special effects for Silent Night Deadly Night 4 Initiation, which sounds interesting. I might check that out when the holidays roll around again. Screaming Mad George's style is grotesque and surreal. The effects he does in society are a ton of fun. Sure, some of the effects look off, but when you are making a mom-dad hybrid that walks on hairy dad arms, doesn't have regular arms, and has mom's head, it's going to be hard to make every shot of that monstrosity look believable. Early in society, Billy calls his dad a butthead, which I thought was a really dumb insult to write into your movie, but later in the film, the dad literally is a butthead. It's as silly as it sounds. The dad even hams it up by making fart noises. There are a ton of weird body horror practical effects in society. It's kind of like if the thing made it to California, decided to become a bunch of rich people, and had a weird flesh orgy with all of them. I really think I'm underselling how goopy and strange the end of society is. The weird, surreal flesh monstrosities at the end are definitely the only selling point of the movie. I mean, that and the amazing look into 80s fashion. Hachi machi are there some offensive outfits. Before Billy ends up with Clarissa, he has a cheerleader girlfriend. She has some of the harshest makeup I have ever seen in a movie. Bright pink lipstick with way too rosy cheeks and blue eyeshadow. I've seen more attractive clowns. During one of her appearances, she's wearing a denim dress and white cowboy boots. A look. Billy's main wardrobe is an oversized button-up shirt-suit combo. He's also always rocking his Nikes, to the point where I believed it was product placement, but I'm not sure if Nike would want to be associated with society. Billy is a huge jerk. He has one friend named Milo that he treats like dirt. During one of his therapist visits, Billy takes an apple from a bowl of fruit, bites it, and then puts it back. Disgraceful. Billy is played by Billy Warlock. If I ever got to choose an actor name, I'd like to think I'd also choose something ridiculous like that. All of the acting in society is hammy and bad. The score is also hammy and bad. The fight scene between Billy and Ferguson is hammy and bad. The punch sound effects are so incredibly fake sounding and terrible. At one point in society, Clarissa tells Billy, mean machine jelly bean. I don't remember the context and have no idea what the phrase is supposed to mean. I think she was calling him a grump. So Billy beats one society member in a fight and the whole rest of the society just lets him leave? Why was it daytime when they left? Billy got to the house right at nightfall, and they weren't inside all that long. Ah, whatever. Even though I didn't find society particularly funny on purpose, I still enjoyed my viewing due to all the crazy practical effects work. If you want to see a bunch of weird, fleshy effects, think about giving it a watch. But let me be clear, the effects are the main draw, and the rest of the movie is just bad acting and wacky fashion which ends up being pretty funny. It's a weird, gross time. Number four, Nodori, The Curse. 2005, directed by Koji Shureishi. Kobayashi, a paranormal investigator, has a cameraman follow him around as he tries to uncover a mystery. 
A woman and her daughter experienced some paranormal activity and mysteriously died. While Kobayashi investigates, he meets a psychic girl named Kana who disappears, another offbeat psychic named Hori, and an actress named Marika. Eventually, it's revealed that a demon named Kagutaba is behind everything. The demon partially possessed a woman named Junko, who then succeeded in summoning the demon who takes the form of a boy, or possessed the boy, after Junko fed Kana fetuses and completed a ritual. Kana is found dead. Hori tries to kill the boy but is unsuccessful. Kobayashi's wife, under possession, lights herself and the house on fire. Hori leaves the boy alone. Kobayashi disappears and Marika continues acting. The demon, Kagutaba, is the killer. This is the second movie I've seen from Shureishi for this podcast. Way back in episode 4, I watched Sudoku vs. Kayako, which I didn't love. I've seen Adori the Curse being hailed as one of the best found footage films of all time. It's not, but I can see why people would think that. The way Nodori is represented is amazing. It looks exactly like a real documentary that also has clips from Variety and news shows spliced in. The effort that must have gone into making the news clips and Variety show segments look as good as they do is astounding. To Nodori's credit, this is one of the most ambitious found footage films I've ever seen. Everything regarding how the film was shot is impressive. In most found footage, you'll have parts where you are yelling at the screen, asking why the hell the camera operator is filming stuff instead of ditching the camera and running for their life. Up until the very end of Nodori, I didn't have the urge to yell at the camera operator. That is until Hori bursts into Kobayashi's house, attacks his wife, and their adopted demon child. Why Kobayashi decides to keep filming while a crazy person is assaulting his wife, I'll never understand. Then, after his wife lights herself on fire and flails into another room, Kobayashi picks up the camera and thinks about following her before bailing out of the house. For a movie that crafted its found footage so perfectly, I'm disappointed that they didn't just have Kobayashi drop the camera and have it film everything from the ground. Sure, he does get knocked down at one point, but for a majority of the attack, he's chilling unbelievably with the camera. I don't think I ever felt creeped out by anything that happens in Nidori. That might be due to me thinking the Kagutaba faces look really dumb. I wanted to see some horrifying climax, but everything led up to two instances of iffy CGI. The first being Ghost Kana, or maybe still alive Kana, being swarmed by fetuses. It's a creepy idea, but the execution is so poor that it comes off as more of a joke. The second is when the boy shows his true Kagutaba-ness while Ghost Kana stands behind him. The brief flash of the boy having the Kagutaba face doesn't look all that bad, but Ghost Kana looks awful. Nodori is a two-hour movie which probably spends 30 minutes following around Hori, the worst actor and character of the bunch, as he rambles nonsensically while adorned in tinfoil. He literally has a tinfoil hat. His character barely adds anything at all to the movie, if anything at all. There's a part in Nidori where Kobayashi follows Hori to a shrine where we see the Kana fetus party, but Kobayashi could have easily followed Marika instead. During that part, she even runs off herself. Besides Hori's actor, the only other character 
who was acted especially poor, is Junko. Barring those two, the acting was believable and felt real, at least to me as someone who doesn't speak Japanese. Pet warning, part of the ritual is the sacrifice of a bunch of dogs, so a bunch of dog corpses are shown. I didn't think they were really all that disturbing. Fun fact that I learned while watching Nidori, in Japan you can't say Kichigai on TV. In the movie, it's translated to Psycho, and another translation is Crazy. It appears you can't really say any words relating to mental illness on TV there. Nidori the Curse is a well-crafted found footage film that unfortunately suffers from a bloated runtime, annoying character, and some poor effects work. Skip this one unless you are a true found footage fanatic. Number 5. You Might Be the Killer 2018, directed by Brett Simmons. A guy named Sam kills a bunch of his fellow camp counselors after a girl named Drew put a cursed mask on his face. Sam's friend Chuck helps him realize he's the killer. The mask keeps making him kill. A girl named Jamie appears to be the final girl. She kills Sam's ex Imani in self-defense after Imani attempts to kill her to become the final girl. Sam tells Jamie to bury the mask in a grave where the original wearer-slash-killer was put to rest. But Jamie ends up putting it on, killing Sam, and walking off. Two years later, Chuck gets a call from an undead Sam. Sam and Jamie, compelled by a cursed mask, are the killers. You Might Be the Killer brings two former actors from Joss Whedon projects together. Allison Hannigan plays Chuck. It was definitely great seeing her in this. It's been some time since my watch through of Buffy. Her performance in You Might Be the Killer isn't amazing, but it works. She basically talks to our main character Sam on the phone while she finishes her shift at a comic book shop. There isn't a lot for her to work with. The other actor is Fran Kranz. You might remember him from his role as the stoner character in The Cabin in the Woods. I really didn't like him that much in this. I don't think he has enough charisma or comedic prowess for the main role of Sam. I would have preferred someone like Jonathan Kite from All the Creatures Were Stirring. But to be fair, having Kranz's familiar face alongside Hannigan is probably the main reason I decided to give You Might Be the Killer a chance. Even though I didn't think Kranz was all that great, I still enjoyed my viewing overall. There is some crazy gore that comes out of nowhere. The movie starts with your typical stabs and a throat slash until you get to a crazy, practical, head cut in half from north to south chop. That kill really got me into the movie. It's by far the best kill of the entire film, closely followed by a decapitation and Julie brutally murdering Amani with a shovel. Jamie stabs Amani several times in the head with it. I mean, Amani was planning on killing her, so it's technically self-defense, even though Jamie probably could have just left Amani knocked out from the initial shovel smack instead of going to town on her head with the shovel. The gore that's shown is a delight. The weapon used for most of the kills is a machete with an alligator jaw hilt. It is one cool looking weapon. The mask on the other hand looks pretty lame. It's carved out of wood. When it was revealed that Sam was 100% the killer, Kat who was watching this with me said, He is Groot. Which got a bigger laugh from me than anything in the movie. 
Throughout You Might Be the Killer, there are multiple instances of text being shown on screen, mostly to show how many people have died. At first, I thought it was fun, but it quickly becomes tired. The events are shown out of order, and the counter is basically there to let you know when things happen, but I don't feel like the movie benefits from Sam remembering things in a weird order. I know that it's done in this way to make you doubt him actually being the killer, but knowing that Sam is the killer doesn't ruin anything. The movie shows that Sam and the mask are bonded in a way where if anything happens to the mask, it also happens to Sam's face. For example, Sam tries to burn the mask, which burns his face. At one point in the movie, Sam full-on jumps onto the mask. It would be really cool if he had a broken, bloody nose after this, but no visible face damage is shown after the jump. You Might Be the Killer is a fun enough time and worth the watch if you're looking for a light-hearted movie that pokes fun at the slasher genre. Number 6, Return of the Living Dead 3, 1993, directed by Brian Usna. The military is using zombies as a weapon. A colonel's son Kurt and Kurt's girlfriend Julie sneak into an experiment using the colonel's keycard. Later that night, Kurt's dad tells him they have to move. Kurt runs away with Julie on a motorcycle. Julie disregards motorcycle safety, which ends up causing a crash and her death. Kurt takes Julie's corpse to the military base and resurrects it with zombie gas. Julie's hungry, so the couple goes to a convenience store where a gang is hanging out. The gang robs the store, shoot the shopkeeper, and run. Julie bit one of the gang members. Her and Kurt get in a van with the shopkeep, outrun the police who shoot and kill the shopkeep, get away for a second. Julie eats the shopkeeper's brains. The couple escapes into the sewer, meet Riverman, are found and attacked by the gang. Julie kills the leader. The bit member turns into a zombie and attacks the others. The whole gang turns into zombies. Riverman turns into a zombie, and the military catches up and captures all the zombies. In the military base, Kurt rescues Julie, a bunch of zombies get loose, Kurt gets bitten, and walks with Julie into an incinerator. Disregard for motorcycle safety, the police, Kurt's carelessness, Julie, and zombies are the killers. Surprisingly enough, the gang doesn't actually kill anyone. Not for lack of trying, they do shoot two people, the shopkeeper and Riverman, but neither of those shots are fatal. One of the members turns into a zombie from Julie's bite, but at this point, the member is a mindless zombie. Julie is a killer because she ends up eating Riverman. Riverman is too pure for this world. He's this dude who lives in the sewers, who does everything he can to help Kurt and Julie. He lets them stay in his place, faces the gang for them, ends up getting beaten and shot for standing up for the couple, and then even when he's a zombie, he sacrifices himself to try and save Kurt and Julie. On the other hand, Kurt, the biggest piece of garbage in the movie, is a selfish, terrible boy. He brings Julie back without thinking about the repercussions, lets a zombie out of a barrel and doesn't bother trying to lock it in a room or anything, so that zombie ends up killing at least one guard. Kurt is the worst. The police are also terrible. The police start shooting at the van Kurt drives off in. Thing is, the police don't really know what's going on, but before they can get the facts, 
They instantly pursue the van and start shooting at it all willy-nilly, which ends up killing the shopkeeper. Honestly, Kurt is to blame for almost all of the death besides the scientists that are killed by a zombie after the first failed experiment. If Kurt would have pulled over the bike when Julie got all handsy, none of the deadly events would have happened. Even if Julie died, if Kurt didn't bring her back, chase her when she tried to kill herself, and free her when she got captured by the military, there would have been a lot less death. Return of the Living Dead 3 is barely a zombie film. It's more of a crappy retelling of Romeo and Juliet. There are some really cool effects in the movie. The gore and makeup effects are real hit or miss in this though. They range from Halloween store horrible to grotesque and neat. There is a zombie that's head fused to its shoulder, so it pulls its head off its shoulder, which tears the skin and reveals its skeleton. The makeup effects look rubbery and cheap for most of this, but I still enjoyed the skeleton reveal. A scientist's brain can be seen after the back of his head is bashed, which looks awesome. The best gore in the entire movie is shown when Riverman, now a zombie who has a metal exoskeleton attached to his entire body, gets his meaty zombie limbs blasted out of the exoskeleton with a shotgun. The exoskeleton zombies is a really cool idea that I'd like to see used in a better movie. Julie ends up piercing herself all over with a bunch of random objects like nails, glass, and springs. This sequence reminded me of Naked Blood, which was covered a while back, where girls were injected with a serum that turned pain into pleasure. Julie's character design is awesome and was the biggest pull of the film for me. Julie is played by Melinda Clark. If you don't know who she is, she played Julie Cooper, Marissa's mom, in The O.C. Melinda is by far the best actor in Return of the Living Dead 3. She definitely tries to show a range of emotions, unlike pretty much every other person on screen. Return of the Living Dead 3 is part one of the Melinda Clark double feature on this very special episode of Blank is the Killer. Stay tuned for part two after this section. Seriously, if you think this movie is ridiculous, the second film of the Melinda Clark double feature will blow your mind. Back to talking about Return of the Living Dead 3. A dude named J. Trevor Edmond played Kurt, and he's terrible. He reminds me of Ethan Embry, since like Embry, J. Trevor Edmond makes the same worried face throughout the movie, no matter what's happening. My favorite part of his performance is when he's wandering around in the storm drain, screeching Julie over and over. Kurt wailing her name is grating, but since he screeches Julie so many times in such a whiny voice, it ends up being hilarious. There are two sex scenes between Kurt and Julie. One while she's alive where they are listening to a sappy piano song, and the other instance is when she's dead. For the dead sexton, they do it in Riverman's bed. Hold up. You two are going to do Riverman like that? He helps y'all hide out, and to thank him, you soil his bed with undead banging. Man, I hate Kurt. I mean, I guess Julie initiates it, but she's dead. She tries to initiate another session on the motorcycle, which ends up being her demise. The crash sends her flying face first into one of those wooden electrical poles, which instantly kills her. I think some recent movie knocked off Return of the Living Dead 3. I can't remember the name. Serendipity? Oscar snubbed? 
Something like that. When we first meet the gang, they are pretending to play on an arcade machine. The machine is Street Fighter 2, and every time the monitor is shown, it's on one of the main menus. So you have three dudes well into their 30s and beyond, and an annoyed girlfriend character, standing around a Street Fighter cabinet as random video game sounds are played. Why it was decided that these older dudes would be introduced by fake game playing is beyond me. They could have just been in the convenience store to buy things. The gang tracks down Kurt and Julie because Julie bit one of them. The gang inexplicably knows that the couple is near the storm drain, finds them, and chases them into the sewer. The gang finds out where the couple is and Julie reveals her pierced up, pointy all over, absolutely insane look. For some unknown reason, the gang leader sees this Julie, who basically looks like a human porcupine, and decides he wants to get close with her. Unsurprisingly, after him and Julie begin to get intimate, she rips off his head. Return of the Living Dead 3 is a mediocre zombie film from the 90s. This watch brings my dive into Brian Usna to an end. I have to say, he seems to work really well with special effects artists, but everything else in his films is mediocre at best. If you're a big zombie fan who has obviously already seen the original Return of the Living Dead, maybe consider checking out the third installment if you haven't already. I only really recommend this to people that love the trashiest of zombie movies because as a whole, Return of the Living Dead 3 is pretty terrible. If you aren't a zombie fiend who loves anything with zombies in it, stay away from this because it's not even a great zombie movie. Number 7. The Quest for Killer Tongue With a heavy heart, I must tell all of you amazing listeners that the Melinda Clark double feature has been postponed indefinitely. Why? Why must I bring you this terrible news after hyping up the second half of the double feature? Life is strange sometimes. I tried my damnedest to locate Killer Tongue. I found half of the movie in decent quality on YouTube. I could only assume YouTube's Eye of Sauron landed on the YouTube channel and deleted the part 2 that I needed to view in order to complete my viewing. I fell in love with this movie after the first half. Killer Tongue stars Melinda Clark as a criminal that ends up being the host for a weird space tongue. Robert England plays an oddball desert prison warden. So many absolutely absurd things happen in the first half alone. Melinda Clark's four poodles turn into drag queens after a meteor crashes nearby. Melinda gets freaky with her new tongue friend, and goofy sound effects were used all over the place. To be fair to you viewers, I could have watched the entire movie on another YouTube channel. The full version on the other channel was an hour longer than it was supposed to be, heavily cropped, awful quality, and had a hideous yellow filter applied over the entire movie. I couldn't bring myself to watch the masterpiece that I know Killer Tongue is in that disgusting format. After seeing the first half, I was sure I wanted to own this movie. I scoured different regions of Amazon for a decent copy, but most of the reviews of the DVDs I found said the version on them was nowhere near decent quality. I took to seedier means and attempted using all of my Google Foo to find a less than legal stream of the film, but alas, the only versions I could find were dubbed in Hindi without subtitles. India loves Killer Tongue. I had found a weird long version of the movie that looked terrible, 
and I had also found the correct runtime version of the movie that looked good, but was in Hindi, so I attempted to sync up the streams using the Hindi version for the video and the ugly version for the audio. For some unknown reason, the ugly version that had an extra hour of runtime kept getting ahead of the Hindi version. You'd think that the version that was an hour longer might be playing slower to make it as long as it is, but for some reason, that wasn't the case. I thought about covering the first half of Killer Tongue here in Section 7, since it's all I was able to watch so far, but Killer Tongue deserves better. The search will continue. I will watch Killer Tongue in full, in decent quality. I don't know when, but I promise you, I will scour the earth for this movie and cover it in a future episode. I have a friend who's on the case and seems to have a good lead. I also messaged Melinda Clark on Twitter, which she will surely respond to. As soon as I am able to watch Killer Tongue, you better believe I'll give you all a full section on it. Until then, I apologize for my failure to procure the elusive film. Such a depressing end to the episode, I know. I hope you enjoyed all the other sections that didn't break bad news. I promise I will find Killer Tongue. If you had a ball listening to this episode of Blank is the Killer, why not leave a rating on iTunes? I'd sure appreciate it. Big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, which allows it to creep up on all your favorite podcast feeds. Go check out another podcast on the network. There will be even more horror movies to cover next episode of Blank is the Killer, which will be out February 10th. Until then, make sure to avoid putting on any masks, even ones you've worn before. Someone might have cursed that old Ronald McDonald mask you love wearing when it was out of your sight for 34 seconds.